Hello and welcome to One Track Mind, a podcast about the real issues, forces and innovations shaping the future of sport. I'm your host, Sam Robertson. This episode, number 57, marks a momentous occasion for the show as we're announcing a couple of changes, both in terms of the format and the addition of a new co-host. We'll talk about the former in just a moment, but I'd like to announce you to start things off today, a major change in the addition of a new co-host, previously a guest on the show a couple of times, Mr. David Joyce. David, thanks for coming on board in a more permanent manner. Hi, Sam. Great to be here. Really looking forward to this. I was going to give a bit of introduction about your background, which some listeners will know and, and others may not, but maybe since you're here, you can talk about yourself. Instead, you'll do it in ways much more accurately than I will. I run a, a strategy and decision-making advisory firm called Synapsing, and the majority of our work is in sport and not athlete-facing stuff as much for me anymore. I've done that for 20 years. Uh, it's very much more about some of the big strategic issues facing sport, which is why this is such a, a natural fit, I suppose, this podcast. About 50% of our work is in, in elite and international sport. About 30% is in the corporate sector, Sam. So our big banks, big property development firms, and about 20% is executive coaching. So there is a, it's a wide portfolio of work, but I guess the thing that unites or links all of it is the sense of how do we make good decisions? What do we think the future is going to look like? What are the headwinds? What are the tailwinds? And how do we try and chart that uh, complex C? And you have been on, as I said, up, up front a couple of times on some of those topics. And uh, I think we've done some work on complex systems and certainly some on strategy and decision-making. And certainly my motivation for getting involved, even though the listener probably sees a lot of synergies and a lot of overlap with our backgrounds is you are covering a lot of sports that I don't. It's also good to know that we don't agree on things all of the time, although we do sometimes. So I certainly think the motivation for getting you involved here is to get a broader perspective, probably get away from a bit of an echo chamber. I sometimes forget what I said 20 episodes ago as well, but what about yourself? Your motivation for getting involved, apart from giving us an excuse to, to chat a little bit more regularly? It's, it's a really good question and one that you and I both thought long and hard about. I guess for me, it is a natural extension of much of the work that I'm already doing, which is trying to forecast what the, what the major forces involved in sport and business are going to be like. And I guess so much of my work is spent interviewing and thinking about these sorts of topics. I guess it just made a natural sense to extend that and be able to give other people the 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 benefit of some of that knowledge that has been uh, accrued over the journey and to be able to speak to new and interesting guests myself. But more importantly, the quality of my thinking is always improved by being able to test my ideas, my hypotheses, having my assumptions called out. Yeah, that kind of links in fairly well to the other change, which is a little bit of a change in, in format as well. And certainly... You hinted at it there a little bit, but it certainly motivation from my end is giving something different for a start to myself as part of recording the show, but also for the listeners, but also that emphasis, not just on bringing topics and issues 
to a level of awareness for people with the show, but also starting to highlight some real impact. And there's a whole heap of formats that I know you and I have discussed rolling out as part of the show that will cycle through. But a lot of those we do so with the intention of having more of an impact rather than just awareness. So I know we've talked about highlighting some startups and companies that are doing work in areas we think are really important bringing groups together from all over the world. I I know an advantage that you and I have is we do really work globally and that's something that we don't take for granted. Certain calls to action as well, discussing some perhaps more contemporary things as well that the show is intentionally one that we don't try and have as a week to week. It's something that should stand the test of time, but at the same time, we, we want it to be really implementable with people working in the field. Are there other structures that I've missed there or other segments, for example, that we've thrown around that you're looking to, to trial in the first uh, couple of episodes? I think the other thing is to look outside of the sport bubble as well. We, what we know is that sport knows sport really well, but so many people in so many different industries are trying to solve the same sorts of problems that we are. So I think there is a real opportunity for us to be able to bring sport into other industries and bring other industries into sport and to try and get a, a broader horizon view of some of the ways that we can solve some of these issues that we're facing. I think there's also opportunities for us to go down little tangents and rabbit warrens. It might be that we're reading a book about architecture or something and that it spurs this thought bubble for us to be able to say, okay, maybe we can apply this and this mental model being implementable outside of the domain that it was initially used for. And I'm really excited, Sam, about getting the listeners involved as well and hearing what they have to say about where they want us to go and what they want us to talk about. I think that's going to be a really exciting development that we can look at as well. Great. To, to kick us off, what we both thought would be interesting today would be, I know we're not right at the start of 2024 anymore, but a bit of a look across the sports sector for 2024 and talking about, in brief terms, 10 big challenges and opportunities for sports as we start 2024. And some of these are relevant right now. Some of them probably more for the future lens. And let's spend a couple of minutes on each of them. It's not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination, and we're never going to cover everything in there. But I think this also helps to set the scene for some of the topics that we talk about today in, in this next 20 minutes or so, ones that we're going to dig into a little bit deeper as, as the season goes on, getting some experts on to talk about. And regular listeners will notice some of these are, have maybe been covered in, in short in the past on the show, but they're just so big or increasingly important that they weren't returning to. So I might let you kick that off as a new co-host with your <laughs> number one, maybe not number one. These aren't any especially order, are they? Before I do that, Sam, it, it's probably worthwhile noting that uh, these things that we're going to talk about, these are not just things that you and I have dreamt up, right? So there is some academic rigor that's gone behind this. I know from a lot of the work that I've done, I've now accrued more than a thousand hours of, of interviews of leaders inside and outside of professional sport, looking at different industries, at coaches, at athletes, at CEOs, at tech executives, all sorts of, of slicing and dicing the, the demographics. And I guess I've always been interested about what we think are going to be the, the headwinds and the tailwinds in terms of sport and innovations and, and teams over the next decade. 
And I think what I've been able to do is a, a accrue almost 40 different forces that, that people are starting to aggregate around and put them into a, a number of different buckets. And then when we look at them through the lens of not every force is equal, what do we think are going to be the most likely? What are going to have the most impact? What is going to have the widest scope? And what are the things that are malleable? What are the things that we can do about it? There are a number that start to swim their way up to the top. The top being that over the next five to 10 years, I'm expecting to see a much greater emphasis on mental health, mental well-being, and mental performance in sport. Now, I think we were always going to get gains in physical performance, but I think they are going to be marginal in comparison to the greenfield opportunities that, that arise in mental health, mental well-being and mental performance. We just have to look at some of the US colleges that have got a thousand student athletes and they might have two counsellors on staff there that are dealing with crises because we know that humans and, and athletes are not just athletes, they are students, they are brothers, they're boyfriends, girlfriends, the whole gamut of life. And all of that can weigh heavily on the mental health and well-being of, a, of an athlete, which means that the mental performance side of things is largely untouched or left to coaches that have got a million other things that they need to do as well. It's interesting, just about every book you pick up from the All Blacks to the Patriots to Barcelona and the like, they'll all talk about the importance of the mental game. And we see this in golf, in tennis, in, in every sport. But I just think the scope for improving the interventions and particularly the strategies around this is limitless and a huge cause of upside for what we're doing. And I'm really hopeful that in 2030, we're looking back on what we're doing in 2024 and are just really embarrassed. I think the mental performance, mental wellbeing side of things is probably where strength and conditioning was 30 years ago. So there's, there's huge upside there for me. No, we'll, we'll definitely do at least an episode on this topic, no doubt. And even more, there's so much in it. It's certainly not my area of strength in terms of knowledge, but the actual links between mental health and performance are, are things there's research on, but I'm interested in learning more about. They're a really fascinating, but confronting question that you, you hinted at then is whose responsibility is this? You, you gave a great example there of sports or colleges being under resourced and perhaps underqualified in some cases to deal with it, but is it actually their responsibility alone at least? Probably not, but that's a, a fairly nuanced conversation. I'm interested in the research about what, whether this area is getting better or worse. Um, I know I have my thoughts, but I don't have any evidence behind any of that. And then interventions is probably the fourth thing I, I think of when you're talking there is what are the interventions that are going to work here? Because again, if it isn't getting better, then, then what we're doing is either not working or it's being over overridden by something else, by a stronger force, right? Absolutely. And, uh, but I also think that there are huge opportunities that we have. And I think for one of the ways that colleges and teams will try and attract players, athletes, coaches is by just how big and shiny their gym is. Um, and that arms race just continues and new, new equipment comes in, all those sorts of things. But the difference between the, the top college and the, the 50th college is probably going to be marginal. Whereas the difference between 
the mental health, mental performance and mental being offering between the first, the best college and the 50th college is light years. Like they are just so different. University of Louisville are building out an enormous mental performance, mental being team. And there are other, other huge Div 1 colleges that don't have anything. So I can see that being a, a huge opportunity, not just in terms of on-field performance, but for longer-term mental health, mental performance of their athletes, of their staff, not to mention a lure for recruitment. Being able to pitch that this is a holistic way of looking after you, I think is a really important value proposition. On to number two, and anyone who listens to the show regularly probably needs to be top on my list or close to it, but technology and AI roadmapping for options, it's probably when we talk about a, a challenge and an opportunity, it's probably both, I would say at the moment. And I guess when I think about this area, nobody's immune from it, either apart from the remote tribes in some regions of the world, but inside of sport and, and outside, there's very practical questions, which organizations are, are dealing with in terms of what tech to buy and, and how much to use AI. But I think the really interesting human questions here are, are for research, putting that into practice, for example, information sources, the quality and the types are changing so rapidly. Now it really does mean a lot of practice that we've done in the past is not redundant per se, but our ability to compare good practice now to good practice in the past is very much diminished. We're comparing apples with that with oranges. If I think about an example of comparing load in a performance department right now, not that long ago, we were all using one Hertz GPS to look at the distance covered by an athlete in a training session. Not too far away, we're going to have real-time biomarkers and 3D gate analysis available to us. We're not even talking about the same thing at this point. So what does that mean for our understanding of practice in the past and, and moving forward? That's really tricky. I think black box decision-making, which is not a new thing. People have been using machine learning for a while now, but as we see this move to automation or at least semi-automation for AI, it has ethical implications for whose responsibility of these decisions. The reliability is an issue as well. If we are relying on these systems, they need to work not just well, but they need to work all of the time. There's no question in my mind in any industry that this is moving way quicker than it is in terms of the checks and balances. And I, I think probably from a human perspective, just to round out this second one here is, is the culture. Is this taking sport to a place that we want it to? Do, do we want it to look like that? Do people want to work in a in sport if it starts to look more like IT? And this is an important consideration. It may not manifest itself to for a generation, but that's another consideration I think of when it comes to tech and AI roadmapping. Yeah, I'm fascinated in all that, Sam. And I'm also really interested in the strategy of implementation, as you've alluded to, and as well as this notion of trade-offs, like what are the opportunity costs? If we put our, all our money and resources into to learning beta, do we miss the opportunity for VHS? Those sorts of things. And maybe that's a dated reference that's going to, <laughs> to show up my age. But Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, that's a better one. I think, look, whenever we're spending time, money, energy going down one avenue, it is time, money, and energy. We're not going down another one as well. I'm really interested in some of the human factors that go into the decision-making about what we choose to pursue and looking not just at that bit, but what are the opportunity costs? What by choosing that, what have we chosen not to do? I think that's a really interesting one that we should flesh out in 
as the season progresses. So I've, I've got number three here as the rise of women in sport. And I think that this is inexorable, long overdue, very welcomed, but there is going to be some costs, which means that marginal dollars are increasingly going to women, not before time, as I say, very welcomed, but those marginal dollars are going to be increasingly being diverted from other projects and most likely men. I'm really interested in the role that men have to play in increasing and in enhancing the opportunities, representation and experiences of women in sport, whether that is in coaching, whether that's as an athlete, whether that's in performance, performance science, and whether that is just in, in society in general. I think men have got an obligation to be real allies here. I don't think this is a women problem. I think this is a society problem that we can make progress on. But I'm also really interested in the opportunities that lie ahead of us in terms of all the research that can be done that has previously been done on men because of, of the ease in terms of hormonal changes, all those sorts of things. I'm really interested in digging into some of those issues and going, what did we think was gospel? What did we think was truth? but may in fact be truth for just 50% of the population. And how can we update our knowledge on some of the biological, physiological processes that to date we're pretty blind to? It's interesting you mentioned the research because I also see interest and opportunities in actually new research that hasn't been done on anyone before being done with women first because I think that's the other thing. At times, there's a justification for what you talked about then. In fact, it's, it's absolutely needed. At other times, people have basically done the same piece of research on women. Second, with the fact it's being done on women, the only differentiator. And again, what I'd really like to see also is the best ideas go to them first, because in my experience, it's not always the case, but a lot of women are, are more interested in this than, than ever before. They, they're staffed for the opportunities and they're much more willing than, than many of the men's teams to, to get involved. That's another angle for me. Number four is data, privacy, and ownership. These are all really big, aren't they? They go beyond sport, but from a data privacy perspective, that's probably different to ownership or it definitely is different to ownership. I have a view on this in terms of privacy. I think it's going to be less of an issue than we actually think in terms of people are sharing just about everything already now. So I think the ownership part will supersede the privacy part. And particularly if there's monetization opportunities with that for an athlete, I'm not saying you throw privacy out the window at the expense of making money, but it, there are indications that that will be the case for some. But again, it's a, not running headlong into this without being aware of, of the risks. Um, you've talked about mental health and well-being and performance up front. I think you're right on the money there, Sam. It, be, it, it may not be as big as what we're anticipating it to be. So people in Europe thought that GDRP was going to be a huge thing, but actually most people have adapted pretty well to that. But I do definitely believe that this is something that we are better off being pre-headline rather than post-headline on. And it probably goes beyond data privacy and data ownership. It's also data custodianship, like how do we act as stewards here? And also questions about where the data is served, where the, where the servers actually are. These are things that go beyond the usual decision-making of people, but increasingly are going to become apparent as we, we look into more of a geopolitically contested world as well. Yeah. The other bit with this is whose responsibility ultimately is, and it's very easy for people to say, and we've all heard it in presentations to say, 
it's everybody's responsibility, but ultimately that's sometimes not helpful <laughs> unless there's an actual operational plan behind it. So that's another one that I see very similar to the AI space in the responsibility on who's making the calls on those things is not always clear. Number five, I've got funding and resource allocation. And so we are living in a res increasingly resource constrained world. I'm seeing this not just in sport, I'm seeing this in financial services, I'm seeing this in education. And so there are some real decisions that need to be made here. And so we're looking really here about the production, distribution and consumption of resources, goods and services, and how the size of the funding, both in ordinal terms and in real terms, so within impact of inflation, and how a decline in that may actually that stress may cause a change in the business model, a, a transformative change that can be long-term a good thing. So I, I, I see this as forcing change away from being in the land of plenty into making sure that marginal dollars, marginal pounds, marginal euros, marginal minutes are spent doing the right thing. But the reality is we're hardwired to go down the safe, trodden path particularly when our runway is so small. And I, I see people that are on at-will contracts. I see people that are on one-year contracts. It go, would go against human hardwiring to take risks if that is the case. Everyone's got an addiction to food, shelter, and clothing that comes from their paycheck. And if you're taking risks that don't pay off and you don't have that sense of security and, and economic stability, then we won't see risk-taking. We'll just continue to build a better mousetrap. So I think there is, there's conversations about the size of funding, where that funding is increasingly being put, but also the stability of that and the impacts that it has on the, the culture that, that we want within an organization. Mm. It'd be great to think that the decisions are based on validation or, or the things that are shown to matter most to an organization over time, but we know that's unfortunately not always the case. And I think that leads quite well into number six that we had here, which is the structure of organizations in particular performance departments, but not only performance departments, but front office areas as well, which are probably the two areas that you and I spend most of our time with. It's not a new area and we've talked about it on the show a couple of times, actually, what is the structure and function of performance departments? What comes first, structure or function? It's the ever-present organizational question. But there's so many big questions in here alone. For example, the skill sets that are required of, of people. We've already talked about AI and technology on this list. Of, is that changing the skill sets that are required of coaches and performance staff and, and front office staff for that matter? What does that mean for the training that people have when they're coming to these jobs? If they're ex-athletes versus people that have got PhDs, who's more desirable for, for those jobs or who fits those jobs better? What's it mean for staff workloads as well? That, that's all, all part of that. And again, the, the part I like to think about a lot, but people often forget about is what do the athletes want? Work environment they, they want to come to every day. Even that's a tricky question because sometimes what athletes want versus what they need can be a little bit different as well. The coach-led model, I know I might throw to you on that one. You've, you've done a lot of work on, on that traditional coach-led model in sports. Even that's one that's up for discussion, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it is an interesting one. So the, the, the prevailing model in, in many sports is that it is 
athlete-centric, coach-led, expert-supported. And I've not really found a credible challenger to that. There are some sports that try and have a, a more distributed leadership model, but my sense is that it's a really great aspirational model. It makes sense that the coach is the leader of the performance environment. But rather than it being the imperative of coaches that may not have the necessary leadership skills to be leading that environment can just add extra stress to them. It can um, create quite a, a toxic environment. So how do we actually make those decisions about what is best for that particular group of people in this particular context is open to nuance, I think. And it shouldn't just be, oh, this is the model, therefore we have to stick with this model. I think that's a, a topic worthy of an uh, episode by itself. Hmm. Number seven, I will throw back to you for. With number seven, we've got athlete empowerment, and that has been one of the biggest changes to this notion of power in the workplace. And power I, I define as the capacity or ability to direct or influence the behavior of, of others or the, the course of events. And one of the big changes that we've seen, and certainly not before time, is the, the increase of the voice of the athlete and being central to their own training program, being central to things much wider than their training program, such as who are going to be major sponsors of the organization, I think is a really interesting thing that we're starting to see a little bit more of, where the athlete is now direct to consumer, so direct to the fan, which is great. There's much more commercial opportunities. We're seeing this with US colleges with, with name, image, and likeness, so increasing the earning. But that also comes with a cost, which means that the fan is being directly piped into the eyes, ears, and brains of the athlete as well, which can come with significant mental health issues. And I think that bit alone demonstrates that these 10 forces don't act in isolation. They don't act in silos. It is truly a complex system where everything is separate but inseparable. So this is an example of that. And also we're seeing moves around the world to athletes having their own little economies around them, their own staff, and going into just the team structure for game-related tactics and technique stuff, but then actually coming straight out. And you just have to watch quarterback on Netflix to see the three quarterbacks at their profile there. They've got their own staffing structures. Now, I understand that may not be the reality if you're involved in a very small sport and you don't have that, but it is a sign of things to come. There's that famous quote, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. And, and I think this is an example of that. So the, the, what we're seeing is increased uh, player autonomy within a team framework uh, in the richer sports, and that will get distributed down the chain the longer we go. And it's only going to become more prevalent because we're piping out thousands of sports science, sports medicine graduates every year, and they've got to have a job. I see this as being a, a big structural change in the way that sport is run. Yeah, we had to cull our list at, at 10, but certainly one of them could have been equity or equalization, whichever view you want to, want to take. We're never going to get it completely, but of certain assets or certain equipment, certain structures, functions, whatever you want to look at for different sports. Uh, and again, for those real global governing bodies, that's a real consideration they have to have. They, they're trying to bring up 
the bottom rather than, than push forward the top. So there's a lot in that topic as well. Number eight, probably one that some people might find a little surprising, but I know you and I hear about this all of the time, which is collaboration and getting it right. Again, it's really linked to some of the ones we've talked about already, but it's the obvious questions like who to collaborate with, when to collaborate and, and where and having the right rationale. But I, I think as sports have become more businesses, but also the opposite where they had pressure perceived or otherwise to do more, but they have limited resource. The need to collaborate is there or the perceived need to collaborate is there. But I know you and I both see it not so much go wrong, but maybe not have the impact that perhaps it could or should. We've seen a rise of innovation departments in a lot of organizations. Sometimes I'm not sure what they're doing is really innovation. I'm not sure it's even should be the remit of that organization. It might be better done as either outsourced or as a collaboration type model. So this is a tricky one. There's not one size fits all, but certainly focusing on real impact and focusing on the real challenges without giving away competitive advantages. Because what I see a lot at the moment is organizations doing things that are somewhat safe. It's not what I would call real innovation. And in order to have that, they may need to take a risk, financial or with their intellectual property. And I'm not seeing as much of that as perhaps I might. But then I guess there's a counter view to that, which is this even the remit of professional sport to be taking these risks? Or do we just let the industry around them, the tech companies and, and the like, do the work for them and, and they can pick it up as they go? And I know different organizations have different views on that. I'm also interested in the costs of collaboration. It does sound like a buzzy word that everyone should be collaborative and happy clappy and all those sorts of things. And I think the reality is that it does, in many cases, slow down the cadence of decision-making because people want to get involved and then everyone wants to have relevance to the, the final decision. And the logical extension of that is bureaucracy, right? So I'm interested to, to dig into some of the other areas, some of the other industries particularly tech, that are actually moving away from a collaborative model. And that's not to say that everything exists in silos, but really having clear ownership of particular work streams without having to get the okay from absolutely everyone. I think that free virtue has got a, a vice as its dark side. And, and I think that bureaucracy is the 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 vice to the to collaboration as well. Number nine, I'll throw back to you. And this is, again, in no order of significance, but I'm interested in chatting about the environment and, and what the challenges of the changing environment have on the sporting workplace. So if we look at the 25 cities that have hosted the Winter Olympics in its history, it's projected that by 2050, which is fairly close to us, only 10 of them are going to be able to have the cl the climate to host it again. And we're thinking about the, the heat of the, the environment, and it's certainly stinking hot here today. But the climate change is something that is bringing unseasonable rain. So I know, for example, in Sydney, the, the summer of cricket has been all but washed out for the last couple of years. So what downstream impact does that have on participation rates? and therefore high performance in 10 years or something like that. that. These are the things that we don't know. And also, obviously, with the environment, we can put in pandemic preparedness and all those sorts of things. It would be lovely if that's the last pandemic we've seen. My suspicion is it won't be. There's lots of things for us to dig into 
the natural world and its impact on human activity and sporting and otherwise there. From one that I think people would have hoped and expected us to have on the list to perhaps another surprising one to round us out that maybe people weren't expecting, communication. And I would add a second part to that, which some would argue is part of communication, which is feedback. Again, tech is inescapable here in terms of its impact on that. We are communicating with each other in different ways than we were a generation ago and athletes know and expect that as well. But when I talk about feedback, I don't just mean athletes giving feedback on the communication they're getting from coaches, the feed, uh, the communication from professional teams to the fans and through media and broadcast, but also their own intrinsic feedback, which is again, being led by, by wearable and, and other types of tech where they getting to know how they move better, not just that, but also how they perform better. And again, I think this is linked in to what you talked about with athlete empowerment. I certainly don't know of a lot of 16 year old athletes that are going to be able to write their own training plan. But if you look at some of the most elite athletes in the world right now that have been at the top of their game for decades, particularly with a little bit of assistance from some enhanced technology and giving them feedback on their bodies, there is a strong argument to say they are getting closer to being self-sufficient as much as that does cause for performance staff to put their egos at the door. So this is a really big one. I think there's a lot of myths and there's a lot of dogma that is attached to communication. It links to the coach-led model you talked about earlier. There's a lot of way that people teach or trying to illustrate or convey a concept which may or may not work. And certainly there's no checks and balances in place on whether the message was retained or even received in the first place, let alone retained and transferred into competition. So there's a heap to dig into there. That could be quite a few episodes, I feel. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, the the other thing that's worth digging into is the, the real purpose of communication, which is ultimately to enable a learning and an update of our understanding of what's going on. And that links back to the learning environment uh, conversation that you had with Harjeev Singh from Orlando Magic a couple of episodes ago. So I think probably what we'll do over the course of this season is be able to reach back into the treasure trove of the conversations that you've already had on the pod and be able to yeah. update and to, to draw that knowledge forward as well. And with, with the communication thing, I'm really interested in, in um, providing the listeners with some tried and tested frameworks. So we're, we're not always talking at this conceptual nebulous level. We do want the episodes to enable the, the listeners to update their knowledge immediately and then go and apply as well. So I think there's a lot of gold in those scene there that we can draw, not just from the world of sport, but from other worlds as well that are trying to solve the same sort of issues. Many of the issues that we've talked about here, it, it would be easy for us to think that these are sports speaking. Many, if not most of these issues are translatable across multiple different industries. So I'm interested in look, looking at the cross linkages as there as well. Yeah, as I go back through them now, I'm not sure any of them are just unique to sports. So there should be plenty of crossover there and probably a challenge for us to see what's going on in other industries and disciplines and, and bring them across. Pretty tricky getting this down to 10. Yeah, we did talk a little bit about access and democratization in there. We didn't talk about participation, declining participation in many sports as a challenge in terms of fan engagement, declining long format viewership and, and what that means for participation. We didn't get into anything too controversial like gender classification, but 
any honorable mentions from your end that I haven't gone through there? <laughs> the participation thing is really interesting because that's a societal construct. If we look at Norway, they've got 93% participation of kids in school. So they're doing things well there. So there, there are some bright spots, there are some models and some templates that we can look at, but this is a complex space that is not going to respond to a technical fix. So it'll be really interesting to look at some of those other areas that involve multiple different disciplines, not just science, but sociology and anthropology and economics and those sorts of things. I think other things that we could have talked about in detail would be the socio-cultural side of things, so the patterns and behaviours and cultures within within teams and this increasing drive for being able to articulate purpose and belonging, vulnerability and these sorts of things. So no doubt that we'll get stuck into some of those issues as well as the season progresses. Thanks. I think we warmed into it on the first episode as we went along. I think uh, became more like one of our conversations than pretending we were on a show and hit the record button. That's certainly how I felt as we went through. Certainly interested from listeners about what they think we might have missed. I'm sure we've missed something in there. Next episode will be immediately after the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in a couple of weeks, which is happening next week, I think. So in two weeks' time, that one will be out. I'm sure that a lot of the topics we've talked about today will be the focus of some of the presentations there and, and some of the newer emerging tech startups as well in that region. So looking forward, I know you won't be there this year, but certainly you can be a sounding board to some of the ideas I bring back. Yeah, I, I can't wait this year, but I am really interested to hear what you're hearing on the ground, Sam. So you'll be our eyes and ears in Boston and really looking forward to the trends in the present, what you're hearing. And also, I'm really interested in the sorts of conversations that you're hearing in the corridors and the bars, what are people actually doing? So that's going to be fascinating. Thanks once again for coming on. I'll have to stop saying that now that you're running the show, but thanks nonetheless for coming on and look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Carl, I really enjoyed it, Sam. Looking forward to hearing from our listeners as well. That's it for this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed the show. Join David and I in two weeks' time where we'll be recapping the 2024 MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference from Boston. Until then, I'm Sam Robertson and this has been One Track Mind. One Track Mind is brought to you by Track Consulting Group and Synapsing. If you care about sport and its future as much as we do, please support us by subscribing, leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you listen, and recommending this show to a friend. It only takes a minute, but it really makes a difference. If you want more where this came from, follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn at TrackVU and Instagram at Track.VU. You can also follow me, your host, at samrobertson.com.au. Thanks for listening to One Track Mind. We'll see you next time.